0: welcome to the moving forward podcast today we have chet back on again say hi chet hello chet is one of our recurring guest stars uh you guys would have heard him the last episode he was on was number 157 on equality uh chet identifies as an anarcho-communist is that right chet i want to don't want to put words in your mouth yeah correct so that might actually make him our most far left uh of our re- recurring guest stars. Um, so that should be really fun. We'll get a bit of a, uh, eh, we'll get some disagreements going, but before we move into the main topic though, as usual, now I'm going to read a five-star review on Apple podcasts from one of you listeners out there. This account calls itself reet Roo. Sounds kind of like Rutro. row said uh Scooby-Doo, right? Chet. Yeah. Yeah. Scooby and Shaggy. Scooby. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely watched that as a kid. I remember enjoying that um it was kind of like uh almost like an allegory for like skepticism about supernatural things wasn't it
1: i think so i think there's some deep themes there
0: yeah and since uh the topic today is free will uh, i feel like that's kind of apropos i didn't plan that it just worked out that way you know all right uh so here's the review from reet rue great podcast i have thoroughly enjoyed listening to this podcast and i hope they continue to produce them it's refreshing to hear both progressive and conservative perspectives and their willingness to explore the other viewpoints respectfully and with open minds. Aside from that, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Yang and really appreciate the discussion of his positions. It is clearer than ever to me that his policies have a very broad appeal. Thanks for the great program. Uh, you're welcome, Rit Roo, And if anybody else out there writes a five-star review of us on the Apple Podcast app, I'll read you next. All right, Chet. So, um free will (laughs) uh you're a very very educated well-read guy you spent too much time in college as you said i should probably mention chet's full name is chet Gaines. i just realized i just called you by At, at this point i think most of our regular listeners know you like like you're one of their friends pretty much you've been on it often enough um so chet a quick rundown of the free will discussion why does it matter um and like what are the basic positions on it
1: sure so um Let's see, most people, uh, whenever they think of free will, uh, they, they're just thinking of kind of uh, how they decide to move through the world and make, make decisions about, you know, what they eat or, you know, what career choices they make or something like that. Um, and the most, I would say, popular position among uh, just, you know, regular folks uh, would probably be libertarianism. Uh, and that's, that's metaphysical libertarianism. It's not a uh, political libertarianism. The two don't really have anything to do with each other. Um, that is where uh, basically you think like you're the one, you know, uh, call it like driving the car. You're, you're the one calling the shots. Uh, you uh, could have chosen B, but instead you decided to choose A, that sort of thing. Um I am skeptical of that position and I th- I think you are as well Rio to at least to some degree
0: Yeah I I would say that libertarianism not all philosophers of free will agree with this but I think that libertarianism in that naive form is um incompatible with the data um and really meaning like the scientific data the the, the neuroscientific data Um, And I I think that it's incompatible with a scientific worldview in a philosophical sense. um, Science tends to be deterministic um, in its assumptions. And so if you believe in science, um, it's hard to believe in that kind of naive libertarianism. I think it presupposes an existence of some kind of metaphysical, extra-scientific thing That a person in a rational mindset is, I mean, I suppose they're free to do that. You can find scientists who believe in, you know, spirituality and so forth. But it definitely requires almost like a religious level of of faith and and, and the idea of metaphysical free will.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that sort of belief is actually like correlated with religiosity and uh, some of the other stuff we'll talk about today as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the popular image that people get whenever they think of free will, they think of like, you know, how they are driving uh, through their life, that they're the one in control of it. Um, determinism was mentioned uh, just now. And so that would kind of be uh, another popular position as uh, basically uh, You're not so much the driver as you're being driven by, uh, you know, environmental and, you know, deeper biological influences, uh, stuff like that. So uh, those are the two kind of uh, positions people tend to think about, um, but there's actually other positions in the discussion. Um, So compatibilism would be a position where a person believes in determinism, but also uh, keeps... uh, some of the the language around free will and still believes that that's like a useful concept for describing some types of behavior and some actions in the world um, and then uh, let's see so so we have uh determinism uh libertarianism uh those are incompatible with each other but then you have compatibilism which sees uh free will and determinism as as uh, not opposed And then, uh, the position I tend to take these days, uh, would be called hard incompatibilism. And, uh, this is a position that, uh, recognizes that maybe there are some aspects of the world that aren't, uh, fully deterministic. Um, you know, maybe there's some like quantum weirdness or something like that, that, that means, uh, not everything follows from A to B. Maybe, maybe the world's a weird place. Um, but you know whether the the world is uh, deterministic or indeterministic doesn't really matter to hard incompatibilists. Uh, we think uh, free will is still not a concept that that is uh, compatible with the universe as it is. So um, I think those are those are kind of the main positions, um, and it, it it would probably get more exotic from there, like kind of above my pay grade. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. That's a um, really good rundown. Uh, let's talk about this basic idea of free will a little longer uh, before we segue into its relation to relationship to criminal justice, um, which is where its intersection with politics is in this conversation. Otherwise, it's just this kind of abstract idea that people get paid too much money to sit around and think <laughs> about. <laughs> right. Which is a which is a really. Um, a lovely, a lovely privilege, um, um, in academia, I, I like you, I spent too much time doing that too. And it was, it was, it was nice. Um, okay. <clears throat> yeah. Something that stands out to me is that we're both deterministic. Um, we, or, we, or I, is that, am I incorrect in saying that? Are you not, uh, do you in the libertarianism versus determinism debate? Would you say that you say I side with determinism or or do you think it's a total red herring?
1: Uh, no, I'm I'm comfortable uh, describing my position as, as rather deterministic. Um, the, the main point in describing myself as like a hard incompatibilist would just be to say like, if there's some like nuance to the notion of determinism, if some aspect of the universe is uh, random, that still doesn't really change my position that like free will isn't really a coherent option.
0: OK, yeah, that that's interesting, because if you kind of think about the the broad landscape, we're on the same side, it seems, more or less. In the libertarianism versus determinism debate, we both think that that the world is determined in a way that's incompatible with metaphysical free will. Um, Correct. But then in the compatibilism issue, that's where we disagree because I'm a compatibilist. And you're you're not just an, uh, an incompatibilist, you're a hard incompatibilist. <laughs> and, so an incompatibilist would be somebody who believes the world is determined, um, and is incompatible with metaphysical free will and also believe and, and also believes that it's incompatible with the broader concept of free will. That's a that's kind of a hard idea to wrap your mind around. Um, I guess we'll have to talk a little bit about what kinds of free will there are that are not libertarian. Um, that are not metaphysical. What other what other things people might mean by free will? To right. make a very philosopher-y statement. Um, but broadly speaking, an incompatibilist just thinks that uh, that um, determinism is incompatible with all concepts of free will, not just the libertarian concept of free will. Um, but you made a distinction, which I find really interesting, of a hard incompatibilist, which is not which is somebody who not only thinks that determinism is incompatible with all forms of free will, but also thinks that the determinism, indeterminism issue is a red herring, which is a really strong philosophical position to argue from, if you agree with that uh, precept.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, you know, if even if the world isn't perfectly deterministic, um, my position is we still shouldn't be using... uh, the term free will to describe, you know, any aspect of our our behavior or our thoughts or anything like that.
0: So it should be obvious to see why the concept of metaphysical free will, I, I, I even though neither of us believe in it, Chet, um, I'm certain a lot of the listeners do. Um, and so maybe we should talk a little bit about why people believe that. What's the what's the reason that somebody would be incentivized to believe that and what sorts of justifications might they make intellectually for it?
1: Right. So, yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's a, it's a very common and strong like cultural belief in our society. Um, you know, and, uh, not all societies, uh, believe, uh, equally strong in that notion of, of like that sort of self-driven causation in the world. Um, but in our culture, I, th- I think it relates to, uh, how individualistic we are. Um, I think it also relates to like some of the theological influences we have in our culture, uh, the way, uh, people kind of resolve the, uh, the problem of evil with, with free will. So like the problem of evil is like, you know, if God is all powerful and created everything, uh, how did he create, you know, evil? And, uh, one way of getting around that problem is to say like, well, he gave people free will and, and people created evil basically, um, you know, the sort of Adam and Eve story. Uh, so even if, uh, that's not something you believe literally, uh, those undertones can still influence the way you think about the world, the way you move through it, the way you think about morality, all of that stuff.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm an agnostic atheist, as I've said in the past. So the theology part um, isn't an isn't a reason for me to be to support compatibilism, but the individual individualism one, I think I probably have to admit that that is one of my motives for wanting to believe um, that determinism is compatible with some forms of free will. Um, I think that it is. Well, this is an interesting question, Chet. As you know, a lot of theologians argue that it really isn't the Enlightenment that deserves credit broadly for building our modern civilization with its uh, contemporary conceptions of right and wrong. They want to say that it ultimately you have, to, you have to give credit to specifically Christianity in the West. Um, do, you, do you find that? I'm assuming you don't. Do you find that persuasive? do you see the enlightenment as moving away from religion or do you see it as some theologians argue as essentially building upon christian ideas uh, which you might argue uh, free will um could be one of them
1: yeah i i i feel like i could see both sides of that um i don't really feel like i have too strong of a horse in that race um and and also if you think about things um th- kind of the way uh history like often builds upon itself i can i can see how uh there could be contradictions like that whereas you could have a uh a reaction to a previous sort of mode of culture and then that reaction also shares some of the qualities and they both kind of jointly create like like future culture so um so yeah i've I've, i'm not going to give a strong answer on that one i kind of feel in the middle um i would uh credit uh christianity for a lot of themes that we have in our culture and our civilization um but at the same time yeah i I see the enlightenment as as heavily influential um could you know we could probably trace influences from elsewhere as well so uh, don't feel too strongly about that one
0: yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, the Enlightenment thinkers were kind of going back to classic um, philosophy that predated Christianity. But I do think that it's true that um, – I mean, it's just undeniably true that uh, the, the Western philosophers of the Enlightenment um, were, live, were swimming in a, in a, in a Christian ocean, <laughs> so to speak. Right. Um, and so it would be arguably impossible for them to not be influenced by Christian ideas, even if they ultimately – um, rejected uh, the kind of literal um, belief in uh, supernatural order as opposed to a natural deterministic order in the end. Um, and I, I think that one of the ways that, well, we, you could argue that deism was kind of a transition from um, theism into atheism, and that that transition through deism was kind of necessitated by the rational... Um, Uh, belief system of the enlightenment and by, by rational, by the way, I don't just mean logical in the um, ordinary sense of the word, because that sounds like I'm saying anybody who's thinking outside of the enlightenment is illogical. And while I might think that's true, that's also just kind of a um, sort of just a mean, shallow insult (laughs) to say about somebody's worldview. It's actually deeper than that. It's that the enlightenment believed in a a very specific um, epistemology that we call rationality. So Chet, um, can you talk a little bit about why you think determinism versus indeterminism is a red herring? Uh, That's, that's um, kind of the most novel concept that you introduced to me there. I I'm I'm somewhat familiar with it, but the the rest of this I've read up on a lot. That one, that one you might be educating me on.
1: Uh, Sure. So um. Basically, uh, a lot of people want to critique uh, determinism by saying, like, "Oh, well, what about you know quantum probability or randomness or something like that?" And then uh, they'll make a lot of funny moves to try to get free will out of like quantum mechanics. And if you'll notice, these people generally aren't uh, you know physicists themselves who study quantum mechanics. They're more like uh, you know internet personalities or something like that. Uh, so I, I, feel like it's just a slightly, um, stronger position than determinism in that you say like, okay, well, even if you want to talk about randomness and I'll, I'll grant you that, uh, you still can't get to free will, like not, not without invoking a bunch of nonsense. Um, and you know, if you listen to, uh, someone who's been influential in this discussion in the, in the popular arena, um, Sam Harris he describes himself as a determinist, but then he will also grant, like, okay, well, you can add in whatever level of indeterminacy you want, and you still don't get to free will. So I think technically he would be a, a hard incompatibilist as well. Um, but that's that's not the uh, the most I don't know popular language at the moment. I think it's I think it's gaining popularity. It's a term, if I'm correct, it was coined by uh, Dirk Paraboom and he's a he's a very fascinating and, and very uh clear-spoken and persuasive philosopher that i've been enjoying lately
0: yeah no, i know it, i it reminds me of you know debates about the say lgbt rights for example um and a lot of people argue that because it's not a choice um to be you know that you're you're born gay or whatever um that that means that you can't uh judge it morally you can't consider it immoral to be gay if you're born that way but um that really is a terrible red herring it's a terrible philosophical foundation for lgbt rights because um you know people are also born as sociopaths (laughs) you know or or are born with a a tendency toward uh, like pedophilia they don't choose to be pedophiles but they still you know we still frown upon people acting on um So sociopathy or psychopathy, or uh, in the case of pedophilia, it's literally against the law, and I think it should be. Um, Now, that said, I support LGBT rights. It's just that my reason for supporting them isn't because it's not a choice. That really is an example of it being a red herring. But, you know, what's funny is sometimes the arguments that are the most persuasive with the general public, that argument really, really does help change a lot of minds, um, are also just objectively not good arguments. And <laughs> that could be because people aren't really op- aren't really thinking logically when it comes to their political positions. They tend to be motivated more by, you know, emotional arguments like I mean, it, it is a strong emotional argument. I mean, if somebody's born that way then how could you possibly judge them for it? That just seems really mean and cruel, right? So, um th- th- this this example it occurs to me as I'm talking is directly related to our topic of uh, free will versus, uh, criminal justice or as related to criminal justice issues, isn't it?
1: Right. Yeah. And, uh, just to jump in, like, I I do think there are, uh, uh, environmental influences on like the, the examples that you mentioned that, you know, uh, maybe people are born with like a predisposition towards, uh, you know, sociopathy or something like that. Um, but depending on, uh, you know a lot of early childhood influences and and other factors uh that can express itself in different ways and you know some people will be born with those predispositions and just you know not understand that like uh belching at a funeral is inappropriate um whereas other people might you know turn into you know serial killers or something awful like that uh so i mean there's a
0: i mean i don't know that first example is already pretty bad (laughs) (laughs)
1: There's yeah yeah there's there's a range of of how those things can express themselves so like even because even like especially issue, if we're
0: talking about a sociopath I'm not just imagining somebody belching I'm imagining somebody just like proudly letting out a really loud one like look at, <laughs> look, look at how loud I can belch you know not like oh I tried my best to hold it in
1: yeah I mean it's 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 going to be uncomfortable either way because you know there's there's a predisposition towards not understanding. Uh, other people in the situation you're in or, or maybe understanding them in some ways, but not others. And so not understanding what's appropriate for a moment, but uh,
0: so one, one of the, but, one of the yeah, early um, proponents of LGBT rights was a guy named Carl Maria Kurt Benny, who um, who did not argue that it, that, you know, it's not a choice, um, which, you know, is true. um You know, they're there. It's, it's probably almost certainly all genetic. It's definitely at least partially genetic. And if environment plays a factor, um, as in your example of the sociopath, um, if the environment plays a factor, that's still outside of your control because you don't get to decide how you're raised. And then you've also got this this genetic tendency on top of it, right? right. Um, so he didn't argue that because he was too scientifically literate to make such a silly argument. Um, his argument was actually founded on in basic liberal values uh, in the classic sense, which is essentially the idea that Unless um, acting upon this behavior, regardless of whether or not you were born that way, unless acting upon this behavior, unless you can demonstrate that it's harmful, that you're committing a harm against another person in some way by doing that, society should be tolerant of the behavior. Because um, respecting the freedom of, of an individual to live their best life, life, liberty, and the per- pursuit of happiness takes precedence over the fact that some other person might be offended by that person's life. Yeah, I mean, I like merely being offended by by somebody else by how somebody else chooses to live their life doesn't rise to a high enough level of harm to justify restricting the other person's liberties.
1: Yeah, I I find that persuasive as well.
0: So, um yeah, you brought you brought up Sam Harris as an example of a hard incompatibilist and I think that might actually be one of the reasons why I said eh, I kind of understand that concept. Yes, cuz I've heard him and others uh, say that, um, but I, I've I've not heard the the term in hard incompatibilism used to describe it yet. And I think, uh, as with the example of Karl Maria Kirpenny, I think that it it really does. Your argument is very persuasive because it, it's even more persuasive than than mere determinism because it, it's basically just saying like. Even if you don't believe in determinism, you still can't get free will. Um, Can you say a little bit more about that, though? Because I I think that there's some dots that we haven't really connected. Like, why is it that even if you have some randomness in the system, that still doesn't get you to free will?
1: Yeah. um, So I'm thinking of uh, Robert Sapolsky's address of this problem in, I believe it's in his book, Behave, uh, where he talks about the gap. Uh, in scale between uh, quantum action and and neurological action, uh, and and he argues that these two things just just really can't affect each other. Um, I, I find that argument to be interesting, uh, but but in a in a larger like more broad sense, um, it it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that uh, you would you would combine uh, deterministic action with indeterministic action and somehow you would end up with a uh, you know like you say the, the metaphysical free will where you would end up with uh some kind of ghost in the machine like uh engaging in in sort of contra-causal action somehow uh, defying the the deterministic like macro world we all inhabit i don't i don't know if that was
0: yeah. No, that may a lot of sense. <laughs> No, I, 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 well, I, I don't know. I can't say whether or not our listeners will have followed it. This really is a very big topic, and it's just it's hard to summarize in just a few minutes. Um, but <laughs> do you have like a um a specific book that you'd recommend people read if they want to understand the hard incompatibilist position specifically?
1: Um, you know the book. I haven't read it yet myself. Uh, it's, it's coming out soon, and I'm, I'm anticipating it very much because I think it's probably going to be one of the most important books written on this subject. But um, Greg Caruso and Daniel Dennett have actually co-authored a book called uh, Just Desserts, and it should be coming out any day now. Um, I, I ordered mine several months ago, and I'm, I'm just checking the mail for it every day. Um, but uh, Dennett uh, comes from the compatibilist tradition, and he's, you know, connecting this to the, the criminal justice angle of things. Uh, he's definitely open to uh, reform in the criminal justice system. Uh, but it seems like he still leaves some sort of room for this philosophical concept called just desserts. Uh, Greg Caruso, on the other hand, is very critical of the concept. Um, and he's, he's arguing for this uh, hard incompatibilist position where, uh, you know, the notion of like holding individuals morally responsible for their behavior isn't really uh, coherent. And that's, that's really what is meant by the concept of just desserts that uh, if you've done something bad, well, then it is just that, uh, you know, punitive measures are applied to you in response to that, that bad behavior, or vice versa, if you do something good, that that calls for a you know, some kind of monetary reward or praise or something like that. Um, If, if we do live in some sort of like deterministic or indeterministic or or some combination of these forces, uh, if that's how the universe really works, um, it's really hard to say that anyone deserves anything or that, that any kind of justice can follow from that sort of approach. Um, So, so yeah, there's, there's a, a chunk of some thoughts and I'm sure that brought up some questions.
0: Yeah, let's uh, riff a little bit on Harris and Dennett. Uh, they have a history of arguing with each other because Harris being a hard incompatibilist is going to be on the other side of the argument from Daniel Dennett, who's a uh, compatibilist. Um, you, you talked about Harris like he's only been influential in the in, in like the public sphere and popular popular debate. I think that's a little unfair to him. I don't think somebody... <laughs> I mean, Daniel Dennett is, ob, is arguably one of the most influential professional philosophers on the subject of free will alive today. Um, And I don't think he would waste time debating with Sam Harris if he was just some, you know, quack on the internet. Right. I mean, he is, he does have a PhD at neuroscience, which is very related to the subject of free will and his doctoral thesis was related to. It was essentially a philosophical exploration of neuroscientific things. So I think he has um, professional claim to lay to, uh, you know, some of these philosophical questions, especially the ones that are related to hard science.
1: Yeah, no, he he's definitely been uh, influential in you know the 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 more academic side of things as well. I th- I think. Um, just where he's been most influential is on the pop side of things. Oh yeah, no, you're not
0: wrong about that. You're not wrong about that. I think I think that like Harris Harris and Dennett um, were both part of the the whole new atheist movement that happened with um, the Oxford biologist Richard Dawkins and right. uh, Christopher Hitchens, the uh, the late journalist. And so I think that Harris was influenced by Dawkins. And Dawkins's career is basically that of somebody who. Um, at a very early stage of his academic um, career, he recognized that he he argued that writing in a way that lay people can understand is actually better than just writing academic papers. Right, and and so right. like, his um his in fact he 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 was um he was granted an honorary position at Oxford this related specifically to the public understanding of science. Um, and so I think, you know, an institution as venerated as Oxford recognizing that there is real academic value in helping the, the general public, not just your students and not just your colleagues, better understand the subject. I think that's where Harris is coming from there. So, yeah, I think you're, you're right that within in, in terms of like purely academic literature and publishing in academic journals and that sort of thing, obviously, Daniel Dennett has done a lot more of that than harris but still i think harris's contribution matters
1: yeah no and and that's that's totally valid this is something that um was uh, was put on carl sagan a lot that he's like some kind of just like pop educator or something like that and he was you know he was a, a real scientist doing real work and was just doing the the public education on top of that um so yeah, I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that I'm like dismissing him or anything. Um although although I do have, you know,
0: criticisms of Harris. Well it's funny it's funny that I'm defending him here because I'm I'm on Dennett's <laughs> side like you. <laughs> like or I guess I guess you're on neither of their sides. But I'm on Dennett's side, um, in the in the debate, specifically the debate with Harris, which I think you also would be. Um y- Yeah, you're undermining
1: yourself. What are you doing? <laughs>
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, um, I guess on the subject of hard incompatibilism, you and Harris just agree, like straight up, don't you? Even if you disagree with them about other things.
1: Yeah, but more or less, it would just be like you know a semantic thing, and you know it would be, it'd be uh, about technicalities. And honestly, I think most of the debate about you know determinism or compatibilism, I think that also gets into semantics pretty heavily. Um, and I have I have uh, some notions as to why those semantics matter. Uh, but for the most part, kind of like you mentioned earlier, like we're probably going to come to a lot of agreement, um, because we'll, we'll still be able to reach, uh, you know, the, the concrete policy proposals from each of our positions, even though we, we don't agree with exactly how to describe them.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I like about, um, about Daniel Dennett's approach to free will is that he does seem to be coming at it from a very practical standpoint, um, which explains how he could write that book. Um, Just Diver- Just Desserts with a co-author who who disagrees with him. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that you know Dennett's big book on the subject was Elbow Room: uh, Varieties of Free Will Worth Wanting, which I recommend recommended to Chet, and he's since read. Maybe we should do a Buzz Book Bros on that one sometime, Chet. Yeah, I'm game. <laughs> uh, and I definitely added Just Desserts to my um my reading list i'll, I'll i'm going to definitely read that um but like yeah so dennett's you know he talks about varieties of free will worth wanting and a lot of a lot of elbow room is devoted to essentially um making a philosophical case for why our concept of the rule of law and our justice justice system Still make practical sense, even in a world without metaphysical free will. Would you agree with that characterization, Chet?
1: Yeah, I I really feel like, um, and I don't I don't want to, uh, I don't, to uh, you know unfairly criticize Dennett's position, but uh, from my point of view, I think a lot of his reasoning is motivated by a want to preserve uh, the institutions that we have.
0: Yeah, No, and I don't think he would necessarily disagree with that. I think that I think that, um, as I said, I, I, at the outset of this, I admitted the theology thing doesn't really um, the, the, the theology as a reason to want to believe in in free will doesn't really apply to me, but a belief in individualism does. Um, and I think that the you know, the the biggest argument that Harris made against in its concept of free will, is that basically Dennett's just kind of moving the goalposts. He's just sort of redefining the term to mean something different, um, which is, I think, objectively true. But also, it's, it's also um, something that philosophers are allowed to do. I mean, if a, if a certain conception of a term is, 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 has no real viability anymore in the intellectual tradition, then one option you have available to you is to redefine the term. Um, And really, all Dennett has to do is show that there is something that we could call free will, and whether or not we call it that is ultimately just semantics. It's really quite arbitrary. But the question is, is there a philosophical justification for certain aspects of our society that Dennett is motivated to want to preserve, Um, like our justice system? And I I found his argument persuasive. Um, it basically, if I was going to try to sum it up in just a few words, basically comes down to that the concept. If you look at like in our legal in our justice system, we actually do make a practical distinction between somebody who is acting of their free own free will um, versus somebody who, for example, was coerced to do it. Right. So, practically speaking, if a person, um, you know, decides they're going to murder their wife. Because you know they're upset that their wife cheated on them, right? Um, our justice system treats that very differently than if somebody was in their house and a burglar broke in and put a gun to their head and forced them to murder their wife, right? In the latter case, we 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 say that the person is not legally liable for it, um, and our justice system justice system isn't really involved in determining moral liability, but I would argue they're also really not morally liable for it. But that's actually a more complicated question because morality is is, is in many ways more complicated than legality. Um, but certainly legally, we make a distinction. And so all Dennett has to do is show that there is something practical and real. There's an actual difference between a person who, regardless of whether or not metaphysical free will exists, the way that somebody chooses to behave, and if you want to take the word choose out of it, the way that somebody behaves without being coerced by another person, right, without, um, that says a lot more about their likely future behavior, right? Because a person is not, a person who only shot his wife because somebody was holding a gun to his head, that person's probably, we can probably assume is safe to be out there in society because they're not going to kill any more people unless someone else holds a gun to their head. And so ultimately the person you should be worried about is the person who who held that gun to to his head, right? Yeah. We've, we've probably um, whereas somebody, him. whereas somebody who who get who's who, you know, regardless of whether they have meta- metaphysical free will or not, they're the sort of creature that just goes around killing people because they, you know, they slighted them in one way or another. That poses much greater threat to society, and so there's still a practical justification for separating them from themselves from people in order to protect people. That's essentially Dennett's argument in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. And, and I would agree with that distinction. Um, so, so kind of the, the big question here is, uh, and I'll just, I'll just ask you to answer, um, does that person deserve to go to jail for, for some period of time that like a judge decides?
0: Yeah, this is a, this is actually another area where I think we're going to find, um, consensus. Um, and I, I, I I don't know whether or not Dennett would go as far down this road as I, as I, as I would. So I'm not speaking for him here. Sure. Um, but I think that punitive justice. So the idea that you should justify, um, punishment, um, justify putting people in prison or executing them or torturing them or whatever, um, for purely, I mean, not even purely, but, but partially because you think they deserve it. Um, and you want them to suffer because of what they did, I think punitive justice doesn't make sense in a deterministic world. Um, or or um, if you're right about hard incompatibilism, which <laughs> that, that you very well might be, it's actually, I find it quite persuasive. It doesn't make sense in a, in a world um, without the concept of, of libertarian free will, regardless of Regardless of the deterministic position, it doesn't make sense to have punitive justice. It only makes sense to intervene for the practical reason of protecting other people from being harmed in the future.
1: All right, so I, I like that, and my understanding is is Dennett is uh, sort of consequentialist, like like you described there as well. Yeah, like
0: I said, I think I, I think he probably would agree with that. I just
1: didn't want to speak for him. Sure, sure. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically the, the, the just desserts concept is if it's like if, if that's why we put that person you know, behind bars or if that's why we restrain that person from, from future actions of harm is if it's uh, you know, forward looking or if it has to do with the fact that they, they really deserve a, a bad time in response to the bad time they gave someone else. Um, and I, and that is the part of the the free will conversation I've I've really become fixated on it's the most important and interesting part in my mind at the moment that uh, that we we stop thinking in terms of what people deserve and we start taking this more uh, forward looking approach and we think about like what is going to create the optimal social outcomes and what's what's uh, you know, what's going to actually correct that person's behavior, uh, move them in a direction that we can all agree is, is uh, you know, positive.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think that's about what we should segue into is what are some what are some of the implications that this has for criminal justice? Um, there are, of course... People who are more anarchistic in the colloquial sense of the word than you are, Chet, who want to just do away with the rule of law and our justice system entirely. Um, and I know that's not your position. I think that we just made a case for why um, the lack of metaphysical free will doesn't justify that. Uh, although there, you'll find plenty of people on Twitter who will tell you that it does. Um, but there, it really does have deep uh, implications in terms of reforms to the to the criminal justice system that would make it more moral. Um, by which we mean, uh, result in uh, you know greater happiness, not not only for the victims um, and the perpetrators, but also for society at large. Um, but before we before we dive into that, I do want to put one little caveat in, which I'm cu- really curious to know whether or not you'd agree with this, Chet. There is one one kind of persuasive argument, n- uh, not necessarily for punitive justice per se um but for something like it um that i've heard and i'm kind of agnostic about this i i i i'm not sure whether or not it's persuasive enough but i definitely think it's at least worth considering and that is basically that if you can show that um that people who are wronged right um get a sense of a, 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 a you know a sense of relief like that it actually impacts the victims um, in a positive way for them to know that not only that the person can't hurt other people, but for them to believe that the person is getting their just desserts, um, then, you know, you could say that it has some social value, even if they're wrong to believe that.
1: Um, I, I would say like, if, if they are wrong to believe that, then that wrongness is significant um, because they may be contributing to, you know, uh, a larger social dysfunction that we yeah. could otherwise correct.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, a really good retort. And that's part of the reason why I, I as I said, I, I think that it's an idea worth considering, but I, I'm not certain that it, that it's fully persuasive. I, that, that's a really good, really good response, Chet. All right. So um, what do you see as the um, implications in terms of reform of our criminal justice system that this, this concept has?
1: Um, well I, I think it's really huge um, I, so for example I just uh, finished reading the book the New Jim Crow which is uh, you know a book about how uh, you know we started out in this country with a, a system of slavery and when that system failed um, we sort of reorganize our, our our white supremacist order into this this tradition of Jim Crow, you know, and, and establish that in laws.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I, so I, I I just have to jump in here for a second. Oh sure sure. Um, I I have I've said on the podcast many times that I think that that you know. Um, Postmodernists who argue that the entire concept of the rule of law is white supremacist or nutsoid. Um, but I have to say there's a huge distinction between that, which I do think is a silly position, and what Chet just said, which I think is, on the face of it, just true. I mean, Jim Crow is white supremacy. You know, like our <laughs> entire our entire justice system is not, but Jim Crow is. It absolutely is. Or was. Yeah, I, I think that if it's other discussion people that... want it to exist. It is.
1: Yeah, I think that other discussion would be uh, much much more difficult to establish. But, um, but yeah, as far as like arguing that, that Jim Crow was a white supremacist order, it was so explicitly, um, it would be really difficult to say otherwise. Um, and the, uh, the
0: argument. Yeah. Presented yeah. The- yeah. Oh. I think it's just important to, I, I, I say that more, more in order to say that admitting that fact, which is undeniably true, um, is just, I just want to stipulate. It's not, it's not, part and parcel to saying that the entire concept of justice or the rule of law is white supremacist. It's the, the way that we went about our justice system for a long time was. Right. And, and I'll,
1: uh, I, w- I want to get back to the idea of, of rule of law later, um, but uh, just to continue on this track. Um, so, uh, you know, Jim Crow didn't last forever. Um, it was eventually, you know, overcome by uh, efforts like the civil rights movement. And uh, it, it was sort of uh, reorganized into a more uh, implicit system of oppression that we understand now to be you know, mass incarceration and the drug war, where th- this, this system isn't uh, explicitly white supremacist. Uh, however, if you look at like, the statistical outcomes, uh, it, it wouldn't be hard to make that argument. Uh, that that it is uh, implicitly white supremacist. Uh, the the drug war- and actually, uh, if you look at like quotes by you know the Nixon administration and and other administrations, you can. Consider- Nixon was a racist piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, and and he was very explicitly fighting the drug war for white supremacist reasons. Um, so yeah, and you know uh, Bill Clinton was actually looked upon pretty uh, favorably. By by black folk, um, he was yeah. In fact,
0: they, at the time they called him the first black president. Right, right, and yet um, he
1: contributed significantly to uh, this this problem of mass incarceration and the drug war, and also restricting you know people who have a felony on the record from uh, getting public assistance or being able to get a job. Uh, made all that stuff much more difficult. Yeah, and it's so, worth saying.
0: So did Joe Biden, and I think it's fair to say in the case of Clinton and Biden, that there's no evidence that they were consciously motivated by racism. And so I think applying the term white supremacy to them, is it's, it's, at a minimum, it's, it's, uh, it's less <laughs> reasonable than applying it to Nixon.
1: I, I would definitely say it's a, uh, it's a systemic dysfunction. It's not necessarily that any given actor in the system uh, you know, has these conscious thoughts. Um they may or may not, and it would be really hard to determine that but uh but it's that the the system as a whole as it well that, no i I, what,
0: I just want to say Chuck, I agree with you that we yeah. can't know we can't really know what their intentions are but in in the case of some people, you can get a better sense of what their intentions are because Nixon you know is like we have evidence that he was a racist person he said racist things and and he justified policies explicitly on racist crowds. some people um, just tell you. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> yes. And and but like I that said, I, I while I will admit we don't we can't know what their intentions are, I think that maybe benefit of the Dow and innocent until proven guilty applies. Because there are definitely people who um, you know, who are more radical than you are, uh, who who would want to tarnish the reputation of Clinton and Biden to a degree that I don't think that you would feel comfortable with. Well,
1: I'm uh, my main interest here, of course, you know, I'm the one arguing that that like uh, basically no one has moral responsibility. So, <laughs> but, um, but my interest here is just kind of like laying that out. That doesn't a, mean that
0: I can't judge them for being racist though. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe uh, you think it does, but I am, uh, man. I, I, I don't think it
1: doesn't. I, th- I think it's, um, I th- I think in the judgment of other people's behavior in that way, um, there is like an impracticality there. And, and if we want like the most efficient progress, um, sometimes that can hinder us.
0: I, I agree with uh, but, that, but, but I, I wouldn't. That.
1: I wouldn't say like, oh, well, it's wrong to judge someone for being racist. Like, that's no, that's a, a good point. I mean, harsh.
0: actually, actually, I think I um, accidentally stumbled into a better example of of the point I was trying to make earlier about there maybe being some kind of an argument for us for uh, let's say uh, a fiction of 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 just desserts or a fiction of 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 punitive. Punishment, right? Because I think that if, if, for example, the belief that racist people are bad people, right, right, incentivizes people to stand up to racism and to not be openly racist, then that belief has a very positive consequence in the world. That's a a stronger argument for that position, I think.
1: Um, I, I I think there's at least something to that. Um but I but I wouldn't uh I wouldn't like build my I wouldn't use that as like a foundation of my, my thought process, right? Agreed. Um, Agreed. But I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time uh condemning people for calling out racism or anything. Like to me that's uh, even worse. Like that seems a little <laughs>
0: counterproductive, <laughs> but regardless right. of the motives. Like
1: like if I wanna say they're being counterproductive, I'm being like like meta counterproductive or something like that in that case um oh my, my god Me- i want a my, uh... t-shirt that says "meta
0: counterproductive
1: <laughs> <laughs> um so y- yeah basically um uh, what i was getting at with this like a uh, rendition of you know jim crow and mass incarceration and uh the drug war is this is the sort of thing that um that we absolutely don't want to see if we care about like justice and social well-being um, and we can look at the way these these social systems were were set up. You know, to, I, I'm tempted to use the word designed, but that kind of uh, implies a lot of forethought, and maybe the, maybe that's not accurate. But but the way these systems were set up, the the outcomes are pretty predictable as to what's going to happen. And uh, you see that the outcomes are are definitely racist. And so this is this is the sort of thing we could avoid if we understood. Uh, how human behavior works, uh, the the influences of environment on it, and you know uh, the ways of being productive and forward looking when we go try to correct people's behavior when we think their behavior is wrong.
0: Um, I think I might disagree with you slightly in a way that doesn't really have any practical implications. <laughs> so oh, I don't know why. I'm...
1: Cool, let me have it.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we would agree about. Mm, the reforms i mean obviously in the case of the drug war um we both support um legalizing drugs so that is obviously you know that's why i said it doesn't necessarily have um practical implications but you said that the outcomes are racist yeah and um i think we might just have to agree to disagree there because that really comes down to a a core um moral belief Um, uh, whether or not you ascribe to the concept of equity as a, as a, as a moral um, principle. Um, And I believe in equality, not equity. And I, and I think you may not agree with this and that's okay. I think that you can't uh, believe in both. I think that the concept of equity is, is by definition incompatible with the concept of equality. Um, And so to say that outcomes are racist um, is a bridge too far for me. What I w- what I am comfortable with, though, is saying that to the extent that people, that some individuals who advocated those policies were doing it explicitly because of racist intent, that that is racist. And that is definitely true in, in enough cases that it can be a, a, I think it's fair to call the war on drugs racist to that extent. That's
1: that's interesting. Um, But but like the outcomes of that policy, you're you're not. Yeah, because I think
0: I guess I guess like if it has a practical implication, it would be that if you take it as far as you just did, then I think it then I think that there is a level of culpability on the part of well-intended people who are arguably not racist, or at least we don't have any good reason to think they are. And I, I just feel icky about calling people who aren't racist racist especially somebody like bill clinton who as you said not just at the time but to this day um is venerated as a champion of african americans by most of the community yeah
1: uh, you know you saw uh, hillary get a lot of support as well because of you know a lot of nostalgia about that period as as you know being a positive time yeah and
0: who are we as two white guys to say they're wrong i mean like i, I, um,
1: I so, so I won't say they're wrong, but I'll I'll bite this bullet and we'll see we'll see how you react. Um, I th- I think uh, racism isn't a uh, isn't really like an individual bias, even uh, we think about it that way. Um, but I think of it as as more of a, a cultural level and a, a systemic bias. And I think like uh, all of us uh, on some level harbor some you know racist instincts and racist attitudes. And I, I wouldn't exclude myself from that. I think if you, you put me through the proper psychological tests and uh, you exposed me to some of these tests where they have, where they like flash, you know, particular faces, um, you know, at you at a, at a subliminal level where you can't actually register uh, what's going on consciously. Um, and people tend to have, uh, you know, a somewhat racist instincts of and that that comes from the environment that they were brought up in and so i think that's something that we we all harbor on some level and that's not something that i would try to uh put guilt on anyone for i, th- I think it's just a, a bit of a cultural fact about the way our society is ordered and it's something uh i would say we we should all work to correct i don't know what do you think about that
0: um <laughs> Yeah, there's some more nuance there. Um, I think that there are different kinds of prejudice and different kinds of racism, if you're talking about that specific form of prejudice. Sure. I think that that there are individuals who are um, more unapologetically or even proudly prejudiced in that way than other individuals. Um, and so I think that talking about individual motives matters um, to that extent. Uh, but I think that there also can be systemic prejudice as well. I don't think that you have to believe in just one or the other. And I find the tendency to erase individual responsibility by making everything defining racism only as systemic leads to absurd statements like only white people can be racist, which is, I think, just <laughs> not true. Well,
1: um, but, uh, so so uh, as for evidence for that, um, uh, you know, a lot of I, I, I don't recall if the evidence is a hundred percent on this or not, but, um, a lot of, uh, you know, people of color have those same, uh, you know, uh, biases, the internalized biases as well. And so it's, it's not, um, it, it's not about the color of your skin. It's about how culture has taught you to perceive other people. And so it's, and, and I would agree about a distinction between someone who's like an ideological white supremacist and someone who just grows up in a a social order that that gives them a sort of uh, implicit bias towards white supremacy Uh, yeah you don't
0: even it doesn't even have to be that far I mean because I I don't think you have to be you know a card-carrying member of the KKK right right. in order to in order to for us to be able to call you a racist person. I think that it makes sense to preserve to, I mean, if you use the word racist to just refer to the kind of prejudice that I think you're right. Arguably all individuals have at least subconsciously. I think that it, it, it makes the word essentially meaningless because it applies to everybody. I think that it does make sense to, to draw a distinction between that kind of subconscious prejudice that arguably we all have. And somebody who is, aware of their their racist tendencies, even if it doesn't rise to the level of full-on, you know, KKK card-carrying status, right? If it's a so- yeah. the sort of person who would still be morally horrified by the acts of the KKK, um, but nevertheless would still feel much more comfortable saying things like, well, you know, Black culture is just inherently violent, right? I think that person is more racist than somebody who just has subconscious biases that that they would feel bad about if they knew about them.
1: Yeah, I, I'd agree. There's kind of a range of expression there, and and to just throw uh, another detail, I I got this. I'm pulling this stuff from memory, which is always uh, dangerous. But um, I got a lot of these ideas from an article that Robert Sapolsky wrote, where he was talking about also in in these uh, these experiments that expose our our implicit biases, um, something that could correct for our sort of racist biases is literally um if the person you're looking at wears a uh, a baseball hat of a sports team that you feel positively about <laughs> so um that that can actually uh offset uh, some of our our racial biases so um even though these these results are are widespread in our society they don't actually run that deep
0: yeah um, no i think so- that's a really i think that's a really good example i like the baseball hat example yeah i think what it is is more like You know, it's human nature Um, and we can talk about like nurture versus nature next, but like it is it's human nature that we subconsciously kind of make assumptions about individuals when we meet them based on our experiences and our our preferences and our subconscious biases. Right. Or conscious. Um, And so it makes sense that if you harbor a, a subconscious prejudice against people with really dark skin for whatever reason um but you also have a um a, a probably conscious bias in favor of someone who likes the um your your baseball team i think that that means that uh essentially your brain is just it's just doing some math and saying like, Oh, I don't really like that aspect of this person, (laughs) but you know, they've got this other aspect that I like. And also his shoes are pretty sharp. You know what I mean? And and so in the end, you're just kind of summing people up when you see them. And I don't think we can necessarily um, judge people for that because that really is just human nature. I think what we can judge people for is, as I said, just like being consciously uh, like, consciously racist as in the example of the black culture quote that i made i think that that is that is something that society has an interest in um disincentivizing and one way of disincentivizing it is for somebody to say dude that's pretty racist don't say that
1: yeah i i would argue it's it's worth countering all of these effects but i would definitely prioritize that effect and um yeah yeah I, i could agree with most of what i heard there
0: OK, so now let's talk about the systemic thing, because as I said, believing in individual prejudice and that it and that black people can be prejudiced or, you know, Asian people can be prejudiced. And, and in fact, the science shows we all are um, to one degree or another um, is not doesn't mean that you, you know, can't believe in systemic prejudice or vice versa. Right. There are people who try to argue that racism must only be defined as systemic and therefore only white people can be racist and sexism must be the systemic. Therefore only men can be sexist, et cetera. We know that's not true. Um, but that doesn't mean that the systemic problems that you're talking about don't matter. They do matter. Um, and we've made a lot of progress on making our system less systemically racist and less systemically sexist and less systemically homophobic, you know, than it has been in the past the degree to which it's still a problem is um uh it's is more is more debatable um but at a bare minimum we can agree that to the extent that it is it should be fixed correct yeah um yeah, yeah, I like that. And then it, it seems to me that when we're talking about systemic prejudice, we're kind we are kind of talking about the nurture side of the nature-nurture debate, right? So if there are aspects about our culture, our system of government, et cetera, that are incentivizing people toward prejudice or that are, are um are pre- pre- prejudicial in their treatment toward individuals, right? In one way or another. Um that, that is, we're talking about nurture. But then separate from that, I believe that there is something about humans, there's something about our nature that we will always have certain kinds of prejudices. Um, I think that the system can try to incentivize us to feel bad about that and to steer us away from acting on it. But I, I think that there is, it's not just a matter, and this is part of the reason why I think defining everything in terms of systems is wrong because I think that I think that you know we are, we are animals with biologies and, and genes and um, our systems can help to incentivize us to behave in a certain way, but it doesn't er- erase the fact that we have these characteristics.
1: Um, so I, yeah, I, I'm gonna have a little difficulty there because I, I think of our, our biology as you know a system as well. I'm a big fan of systems theory um and a communist you like systems theory (laughs) um it's systems all the way down no uh but but yeah i i think when you're talking about you know some kind of like baseline prejudice that we're prone to um i think that relates to how our how our brains have evolved and i do think in a number of ways we're prone to uh unconscious snap judgments and that has to do with uh the fact that you know if you're in an environment where uh, a tiger might eat you, um, you're better on, uh, erring on the side of, you know, uh, hyper attention and running away. And, uh, our, our brains are somewhat wired to make those sorts of snap survival judgments rather than like, Oh, I wonder if that's a tiger. Like, Hmm, maybe I'll think about it. Like, and meanwhile, that guy got eaten, you know? So he was, he was selected against, Uh So, uh,
0: but how those... Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. It's still systems. It's a different kind of system, is all I'm saying, right? I mean, Uh, if we can figure out ways to alter people's um, genetic makeup or whatever, then suddenly it becomes, you know, the the boundaries between nature and nurture get even more gray. Uh, But I think right now they still matter.
1: What I would say is that the way those um, sort of snap judgments map on to our society and the way they become associated with something like uh, race... Um, that, that has a lot to do with environment. And so I I think even though, uh, we're going to have a, we're going to have a prejudice towards, uh, you know, various types of irrational beliefs. Um, I think there's a lot we can do to shape our environment, to keep those prejudices from becoming a problem.
0: Yeah, no, Um, I, 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 agree with that. Um, okay. So obviously ending the war on drugs seems like a pretty good, um, practical implication in terms of policy. What are some other uh, criminal justice reforms that you think that this has implications for?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, just uh, we mentioned the war on drugs. Um, I also mentioned uh, mass incarceration, which was kind of the main target of the, the new Jim Crow. Um, you know, we just love locking people up in this country. We do it at just an unheard of rate, compared to almost every civilization that's ever existed. I, th- I think we're the winners of all time as far as like, you know, putting yeah, people so, in Yeah. So, I mean, obviously,
0: obviously the war on drugs is a huge part of the reason for mass incar- incarceration. Can you think of mm-hmm. other examples of things that people shouldn't be locked up for? Um, You know, if you look
1: at uh, countries and, and these are not, Ideal examples, but they are real-world examples that we can learn something from. If you look at countries that are less punitive, and that are, um, I don't know, more uh, focusing on reform, uh, a lot of a lot of places get better results. Wait, I
0: just have to say, in this case, you mean reforming the behavior of individuals, not just reforming the policies. Correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're they're focused on uh, the the actual rehabilitative process um, and and behavioral change bingo um, so there-, there you
0: go that's the I agree with that I think the other big implication is that in a world without metaphysical free will, it makes not just moral but also practical legal sense to uh emphasize rehabilitation over punitive punishment
1: yeah it 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 makes sense from punitive almost every punishment angle. punishment is a bit
0: redundant but I- <laughs> <laughs>
1: um
0: no, it makes sense
1: from almost every angle like uh you know there's there's various prisons in Norway you can look at that they they uh, save a lot of money because they're not having the same people come and visit them, you know, two, three, four times. Uh, they, someone shows up, they have a problem. They help them work it out. They help them connect with their community. And when those people come out of those prisons, which to be honest. There you go. Okay.
0: Yeah. So practically speaking people who are more effectively rehabilitated are less likely to be repeat offenders, um, which right. is, which is not just good for them. It's good for society because fewer crimes are being committed. So basically keeping people in jail for longer or locking, locking them up on the first minor offense is not necessarily the most effective way of creating the incentives that you want in society. And in fact, right. it might actually harden them and make them into worse criminals.
1: Yeah. And there, um, there are,
0: There's hard evidence for that in many cases. Yeah. And
1: also as uh, one of my favorite philosophers said, you know, uh, I think over a hundred years ago that, uh, prisons are the universities of crime. It's it's where people go to to really learn how to do stuff. You know?
0: Yeah, no, you're not so wrong about that. You're we, absolutely uh, right, Chet. Yeah, um, we
1: condition people into surviving in, in harsher situations and, and they adapt because that's what people do. We're we're extremely adaptive to environment. And so yeah, you put someone in a tough situation, they're gonna learn how to deal with it.
0: So one is we should be much more selective about the sorts of things that we make illegal at all. And the drug war is a a good example of that. Right. right? Um, another, other obvious example, this isn't one that's enforced, but it would be like, you know, the loss against sodomy and that sort of thing are absurd. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important to point out also apply to straight people. Um, you know, straight people benefit from sexual liberty as well. Um, you know, so there's, that's one. And then another is the rehabilitation, uh, versus punitive emphasis. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I have a third one for you. Um, uh, basically, uh, preventative measures that we can take. So, uh, one of the things I learned about, um, you know, crime rates in the new Jim Crow is it was cited that when you control for, uh, joblessness, uh, the violent crime rates between black and white, you know, male youths, uh, equal out. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, talk about the statistics with, you know, black crime and things like that. And it's like, well, if you, if you adjust for these various, you know, economic conditions uh, we see that this isn't any sort of inherent problem. This is a, a, a reaction to environment. And so, uh, you know, we can take all kinds of preventative measures to just make sure crimes never happen in the first place. There's, there's tons of measures we can take like uh, UBI that would that would be one of them that's been proven to lower crime uh you know and there's there's a, a million other approaches we can take to shaping yeah, society that, that's a good example crime will happen
0: yeah, 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 I mean obviously, I don't think that it's going to result in zeroing out the level of crime i I, I think that there are some people, it's just their nature they're always going to commit crime no matter. No matter how well you um, cre- make create the incentive structures, but I do think that it's obviously true that it would drastically reduce crime. Right. Another uh, related example would be this is one of the reasons why I support um, uh, women's right to choose. I think that when you force women to carry children to term um, against their will, that it results in those women's lives. You know, maybe they have to drop out of school. They make less money over the course of their lives. Plus, they have an extra mouth to feed. It increases poverty, which also increases crime. Um, so, you know, these are the sorts of things that we we should care about. Even if somebody does believe in free will, I think it still makes sense to try to prevent <laughs> to try to prevent crime in that way. Actually, um, right, right, yeah. Now, uh, and I get, I guess this is kind of related to the rehabilitation versus punitive thing, but a a, a pretty big category where it matters is quality of quality of life in prison. You know, if right. you're motivated by punitive things, then you would say you got to make prison as uncomfortable as possible. But of course, that's part of what breaks people's psyches down and turns them into hardened criminals, isn't it? Um, so you could argue that even if it costs taxpayers a little more money, having prison not be a place that turns them into hardened criminals um, is is worthwhile.
1: Oh, you, you likely come out ahead. And um, like I mentioned
0: earlier, yeah, I think you're the- right. I think you would save money because it's very expensive to lock people up. When yeah. they, when they recommit crimes,
1: like I mentioned with, uh, you know, the model of some of these places in Norway, uh, you have uh, these prisons that, um, don't necessarily restrict people from leaving, which is so counterintuitive to us. Um, and they look more like summer camps and they have, you know, music studios and they have, they have all these facilities to, to help enrich that person's life. And this is very counterintuitive to a punitive mindset that says, like, we, these people need to suffer to learn that what they did was wrong. You know, they deserve that punishment. Um, I do think that
0: even even, even outside of metaphysical free will, the idea that you want to incentivize people to not repeat the behavior um, with a certain degree of discomfort or a certain degree of limitations on their liberty does make some practical sense. Part of, of disincentivizing behavior is, you know, you don't you don't want it to be like imagine as you're you're a person who is and I know that part of what you want to do in order to prevent it is to decrease poverty, right? And imagine you're a person who's, you know, um, living paycheck to paycheck, you hate your life, or maybe you're even homeless. And there's this wonderful summer camp that all you have to do to get into is to rob somebody, right? <laughs> you know, I do think that the I do you think that it is worth considering finding the right balance there, even if um, it's not morally justified? So yeah, I I would
1: say we sh- like you mentioned, you know, I I want to fix things on the the you know public health side of things so that people wouldn't be motivated like that. But also, um, I I think the argument you're making uh, in the abstract is is logically sound. Um, but when you actually look at the the psychological literature and you you look at like the the facts that we've observed about human behavior. Um, People are not necessarily incentivized in this way. Like, like we mentioned, uh, you know, these systems that are much less punitive and they they border on luxurious, uh, they get lower recidivism rates. I mean, if it was really that much better than the rest of their social life, those people would just be coming back.
0: That's true. Um, I think it also works. I mean, these are these are societies that are pretty strong um, and generous uh, social democracies where. That you know, this works in tandem with ensuring that people's lives outside of prison aren't miserable either.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think there's an overall uh, view of public health that, yeah. that and, we, I, and I, think, I, think somebody, of... I think I think somebody,
0: I think I think a conservative can worry about you know the cost of some of this without without believing in metaphysical free will as a justification for puni- for punitive action. Um, but like you said, it, you could argue that in some cases it saves money. I think overall um, that in combination with a very generous, uh, welfare state is pretty expensive. And so there is some room for some economic disagreement there still. But I think uh, in terms of the, in terms of the, uh, the philosophical argument about free will and its implications on all of this, um, you're totally right.
1: Sure. And, and I would argue even, even if it, uh, even if it didn't come out that, that it was, uh, beneficial economically, um, I'd say it's something worth paying for. Like, uh, you know, a healthy civilized society is is worth paying for
0: that certainly would be the the left-wing argument and i am willing to compromise with people like you (laughs) uh but not the tankies fuck the tankies (laughs) fuck the tankies (laughs) all right and uh chet do you wanna do you want to say it yeah uh moving forward
1: is our gumbo Thank you for joining us on the Moving Forward podcast. Conversations like this can help lay the groundwork for a productive and collaborative future for us all. If you haven't yet, go to movingforwardpod.com for more content and information that can help you support the show.